It is uh, great to be with you today after a trip to Israel uh, a couple of weeks ago. It's a great time as we visited places like Caesarea, Nazareth, where Jesus grew up, the Sea of Galilee, we took a boat ride on the sea, uh, Capernaum, Jericho, Bethlehem, and of course Jerusalem, the Temple Mount, uh, uh, Mount Zion, and, and the Mount of Olives. It was glorious as we concluded the trip with a visit to Gordon's Calvary and, and, uh, and the, uh, the Garden Tomb where we remembered the death and resurrection of, of our great Christ with communion. It was, it was sweet with a, a group of very special um, people. It was, it was a deeply spiritual trip. I, I was enjoying the flight back to Charlotte on Lufthansa. I, I had downloaded Michael's sermon from the previous Sunday, and I'd literally just finished listening to it. It was a great, great sermon, as was Josh's last week. But back to the plane, I, I finished the sermon, I, I looked across the aisle to one of the guys um, from the trip, an elder to remain unnamed, who looked at me and said, I have some great country music if you want to listen. Meryl, I mean the elder, was smirking, knowing of my great admiration for country music, which to me is a bit of an oxymoron. He said, here's a good one, and made me, made me listen to a song called Dead Skunk. I mean, really, it's a real song. Some of the lyrics go like this, speaking of the skunk, crossing the highway late last night, he should have looked left and he should have looked right. He didn't see the station wagon car, the skunk got squashed and there you are. I know you're moved. You got your dead skunk in the middle of the road, dead skunk in the middle of the road, dead skunk in the middle of the road, stinking to high heaven. And there I was, 40,000 feet above the Atlantic, 40,000 feet closer to heaven, and it brought me quickly back down to earth. Where else but country music can you get such deeply meaningful lyrics? The song goes on, I will spare you. It did, however, get me thinking about how, many country, how country music is a goldmine for relationships, especially the wonderful and abiding, emphasis on abiding, husband-wife relationship. Consider the following. These, by the way, are actual song titles of country songs. I just picked out 10 of the dozens from which to choose. Are you ready? First, how can I miss you if you won't go away? <laughs> Second, I'm so miserable without you, it's just like having you around. <laughs> Next, if the phone don't ring, baby, you'll know it's me. Next, if you don't leave me alone, I'll go and find someone else who will. Next one happens to be my favorite. My John Deere was breaking your field while your dear John was breaking my heart. Oh, I mean, who thinks of this stuff? Next, I, how come your dog don't bite nobody but me? I've discovered that English grammar means nothing in country music. Next, thank God and Greyhound, she's gone. 
Next, keeping English grammar in mind, you done tore out my heart and suck, stomped that sucker flat. <laughs> Two more. <laughs> you were only a splinter as I slid down the banister of life. <laughs> really? And last, you're the reason our kids are so ugly. <laughs> What do you do with those? <laughs> now, to be honest, there is one country song I, I do kind one, I do kind of like. It's by Rascal Flatts, titled "Backwards." It goes like this: I was sitting on a bar stool in a barbecue joint in Tennessee when this old boy walked in, and he sat right down next to me. I could tell he'd been through some hard times because there were tear stains on his old shirt. They're either on the shirt or on the jukebox. And he said, you want to know what you get when you play a country song backwards? You get your house back, you get your dog back, you get your best friend Jack back, you get your truck back, you get your hair back, you get your first and second jobs back, you get your porch swing, your pretty little thing, your bling, 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 and a diamond ring. You get your farm and the barn and the boat and the Harley and that old black cat named Charlie. It sounds a little crazy, a little scattered and absurd, but that's what you get when you play a country song backwards. <laughs> now. I know that I've lost some of you <laughs> to lyrics that are running through your minds. I need to invite you to come back. You see, many songs, not just country songs, bewail the end of a relationship. And yet the Scripture says much about the abiding marriage relationship. After all, it is God who created it, designed it. He knows how it should work, even in the midst of our country song brokenness. And so, for example, we find many so-called household codes in the New Testament by the Apostle Paul and Peter, for example. You see, contrary to those songs, I'm actually trying in these past two sermons a few weeks ago and today to see what Scripture says about how to live with each other as husbands and wives, to stay married till death do us part. That was part of the vow. You remember that? Now, remember, we are studying First Peter where Peter is writing to struggling, suffering believers. His purpose is to tell them, how to live beautiful lives in a culture that opposes you and, and opposes your faith, how to live beautiful lives to make Christ and His gospel attractive. You see, now, if you don't get anything else, listen, the marriage relationship is the model of the relationship that Christ has with His bride, the church. You understand He created marriage before Israel, before government, before the church, his relationship between Christ and His bride, the church. And so we should strive to make that model beautiful. We're in the main body of Peter's letter, extending from the middle of chapter 2 to the middle of chapter 4. He starts by recording this, his own household code. But we must remember the context. I said a few weeks ago, if we simply use this as a marriage manual, then we're missing it. 
We've got to look at it in its context. Peter here is listing three relationships involving authority within which those under authority may face some challenges. People and unbelieving governments, for example. Slaves and unbelieving masters. And then last time, wives and unbelieving husbands. Not just unbelieving, but sometimes when husbands act like unbelievers. It's very interesting that Peter does not much address those in authority. Now, Paul does. For, for example, Paul has much to say to masters and their relationships with their slaves or their servants. He has a lot to say to husbands and their relationships with their wives. In fact, the longest a text in the New Testament on the topic of marriage, he's, he, he, yes, he tells wives to submit to their husband, but then he has an awful lot, some very rigorous demands that he makes to husbands in Ephesians chapter 5. Peter says nothing to masters, and he has very little to say to husbands. But what he says to husbands is deeply meaningful and frankly convicting. So read the text with me. First, Peter chapter 3, verse 7, one verse says, you husbands, listen up. It's got your attention. In the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she is a woman and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. Sum it up. Now, Peter's going to say that in the next verse, but summing up this verse, Peter says that we are to live with our wives in, and this is our outline, in three ways, in an understanding way, in a supportive way, and in an honoring way. And I want to look at each one of those. Now, I know I sound a little nasally this morning. I have a bit of a cold. It's not coronavirus, but it does give me the opportunity to address that particular issue. In fact, further to pray about that issue. If you've paid attention to the news at all over the last few weeks and months, you know that coronavirus is reaching what would be considered pandemic um, proportions. And I, I looked just this morning, and the latest numbers have over 100,000 infected with almost 3,600 deaths um, worldwide, and it has inv invaded our own country. Uh, as of this morning, 32 of our 50 states, 32 states have someone with corona, the coronavirus. Over 400 people infected, 19 deaths in Washington State, in California, and two down in Florida. 32 states to include the state of North Carolina. We have two, two have, who have been diagnosed with the coronavirus, not here in Boone, but barring a vaccine, it will inevitably come. And so, what should our response be as Christians, as followers of Christ, to this particular challenge? I've got three things, not my sermon, but, you know, three points. First thing that I want to say to you is can we please avoid the hysteria on the one end? All you got to do is look at the news, avoid the hysteria on the one end, but then also let's not ignore it. 
let's recognize that this is a significant challenge of which we we should be aware further we should perhaps do something about. You see, can I say to you that the church has always been, through its history, for the last 2,000 years, the church has always been the one to run into danger and to care for the sick and the infirmed. Why do we do that? Because of the second point I want to make. Can we not fear, but can we trust? Our days are numbered. We, we sang it, didn't we? No scheme of, uh, or, or, or no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. You sang that with great boisterousness. Do you believe it? I do. And my life is in his hands. And so can we avoid, uh, on the one hand, hysteria, on the other, ignoring it. On the one hand, can we avoid fear and can we trust? Which leads to the third thing that I want to say. Can we take appropriate precautions. I believe that we should do that. To that end, we have multiplied the number of antibacterial dispensers. I hope you've noticed that. Uh, Can I encourage you to use those? Use those as you're coming in. Further, it's okay. I know that that how it's passed. I've done all of the reading and things like that, and so I know how it's passed. Um, To be clear, we're not going to stop meeting. If the government tells us we can't meet, that because of the coronavirus, then we won't meet. We'll obey the government. If they tells us, tell us we can't meet because we're followers of Jesus, we're going to meet. We're going to keep on meeting, but we can take appropriate precautions. We can wash our hands, right, and we can use the, the dispensers. And can we also, I'm giving you permission right now, okay, I'm giving you permission. You can not shake hands and not hug. That's okay. That's really hard for me, but I'm going to do it to the best of my ability. If I hug you, Sorry asking in advance because I love you and I know that you love me and when we get through this when a vaccine is is discovered or whenever when it runs its course we'll just go back to being um, uh, uh, affectionate toward one another as we are I just want to address this issue so that we do not um, so so that you know what our position is going to be we run listen look at what Samaritan's Purse did with Ebola we run to the danger because we are the church And we're going to do that. So would you join me as I pray? Father, um, our hearts are quite concerned um, about uh, this uh, global, uh, what (laughs) by all measures is becoming a pandemic. And um, with some significant, uh, with a significant number of deaths. And I know all of the numbers as it relates to the flu and percentages and all of that. And it's three times the amount uh, of those who contract the disease who uh, end up um, dying, succumbing to the disease. And that is concerning to us. And when I think of the 3,600 people who have already died, I pray for, um, first for family members, that, that in the midst of this darkness, the light would shine brightly. We see the world is broken. We just sang it. It's good to remind ourselves that this is not the end that there is a new world coming, a new creation coming, and for that we long. Would you be with those who are currently sick? Would you preserve life? Would you help people? I've never prayed for universal healing, but I pray that you would defeat this virus in the name of Jesus. And would you help people to find health? And then would you help us to not fear? to not give in to the fear-mongering and the hysteria, but would you help us to be the church? Would we trust? 
And would we help where we can help, pray where we can pray, and would you use us to the end that we are a people who trust Jesus, who you have us in your very hand. The day, our days are numbered, and we long to be with you. And so we will not give in. We will trust. Would you protect this church? Would you protect this community? Would you do your work in the name of Christ? Amen. So, Peter says we are to, and that was a little aside, um, Peter says that we are to live with our wives in three ways. Number one, in an understanding way. Number two, in a supportive way. And number three, in an honoring way. Look at those. First, I am to live with my wife in an understanding way. Literally, I am to live with her according to knowledge. That means I am to live with and know, I am to live with and know my wife. That seems easy enough until you try to do it. It takes work. It doesn't just happen. Now, most of the commentaries point out that there are sexual undertones here, living with your wife, without going into great depth in this mixed audience. It simply means, as a husband, I am to meet my wife's sexual needs and not merely my own, which would likely change what happens in many bedrooms. And I'll leave it at that. But further, what does this mean, I am to live with her according to knowledge. It means simply that I am to be a student of my wife. I am to study her, understand her, to know what makes her tick and not just what ticks her off. That's right, guys. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to understand your wife. And I know that sounds a bit like Mission Impossible. It was a man a man slowly walking along the beach one day in the coast of California when he discovered a genie's bottle. Now, I know genies don't exist, but hey, we're talking California. <laughs> when he discovers a genie's bottle, when he rubbed it, you guessed it, the genie came out and granted the man not three but one wish. The man said, I've always wanted to go to Hawaii, but I'm afraid of flying. Would you build me a bridge to Hawaii? The genie responded, listen. I, I know you think humans, I know you humans think we can do anything, but do you understand what you're asking? That is a 3,000-mile trip. That would be an engineering marvel. Ask for something else. The man thought for a moment and remember why he had been slowly walking on the beach, said, okay, my wife and I just had a fight. She says, I never understand her. Would you grant me the ability to understand women? To which the genie responded, do you want that bridge two or four lanes? I get it. I know that it sounds a bit like an impossible mission, but we are commanded to live with our wives according to knowledge. When we say men are from Mars and women are from Venus, to live with her according to knowledge means that we are willing to take the trip to Venus. You're willing to live in her world, to probe beneath the surface, to understand and meet her needs and desires. Who is this woman to whom you're married? What goes on inside her mind and her heart? What are her fears and her aspirations and her dreams? 
The idea is not only to know and understand her, but having done so, to live with her in such a way that you are, listen, considerate, that's a key understanding of this word according to knowledge, considerate with that knowledge. In other words, you do something about it. You understand her and you act on the knowledge. You know, when the Bible says that we are to leave our parents, it's very interesting to me that the command is actually to the men. You ever notice that before? God said of Adam, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to, be cleaved to his wife. It means we, that word cleaved to, united to, means that we are to be actively involved in the lives of our wives. We somehow have the idea that she's the little woman, she's supposed to be involved in my life. That's not what the Bible says. You are supposed to be actively involved in the life of your wife. We pursue them. We know them. We got to hear that, guys. Let's be. Let's just be honest with one another. We've hid behind the shield of ignorance long enough. The problem with most of us is not that we do not know. The problem is we refuse to act on the knowledge we already have. Live with your wives with knowledge in an understanding and considerate way. Second, Amen. We are to live with them in a supportive way. I get that simply from the phrase, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she is a woman. Now, that is not meant to be demeaning, a slam, or chauvinistic. We need to first eliminate, as I said the last time we talked about this, any idea, any whatsoever, any idea of inferiority. Peter is not saying that women are are morally, spiritually, or intellectually weaker or inferior. They are not. Again, as long as we're being honest, many, if we were honest with one another, we would say many of our wives are superior in many of those ways. Some want to say that Peter is referring to physical strength here. In fact, most of my commentaries agreed on that, and and I suppose there's a sense in which that is true. Generally, men are physically stronger than their wives. That's not meant to be a statement of condescension. I would not want my wife to be able to beat me in arm wrestling. And yet, I've never tried it because there's a reason. Have you ever noticed when you're in the grocery store, remember when the children were little? I mean, really little. I mean, little, little. And you're in the grocery store and you're walking around and she's got the little tyke. This was back before those wrap-ups and things like that. She's got the little tyke, and you make your way about three-quarters of the way through the grocery store, and you notice finally you wake up, and you know she's been carrying him the whole time. You say, here, let me take little Johnny. And you take little Johnny, and you last for about half an aisle. Then you got to give him back. Why is that? That's why I've never challenged her in arm wrestling. Here's the point. We should use our strength to support our wives, to provide for and protect our wives. We ought to be the primary provider and protector of our wives. That's our job. I remember reading a book on Christian counseling during my college years, and the author astutely pointed out that while a man's primary need is significance, now listen, I know that we abuse that and it turns into something ugly called pride, but while a man's primary need is significance, a a woman's primary need is security. 
She needs to feel secure in the relationship. She needs to know that you're going to be there tomorrow and the day after that. She needs to know that you're going to protect and provide for her. She needs to feel secure in the relationship. And so God gave men strength to make that happen. But like many of God's gifts, physical strength may and can and has been used to abuse wives. And many of you have used your physical strength to intimidate and manipulate your wives. That is not what God intended. I'm going to be very clear. You should never raise your hand to your wife. Never. That is not living with them in an understanding and considerate way. I also happen to think that the masculine physical strength may be used to abuse what I believe Peter is actually talking about in this passage. What's the context? In what way in the context are women weaker? Physically, perhaps. I don't think it's just that. Earlier in verse 1 of the chapter, Peter told wives to be submissive to their own husbands, even as Paul had done in many of his letters. Last time we were together, we saw that this is to be a voluntary act on the part of the woman. They voluntarily place themselves under the authority and and headship of their husbands. In other words, nowhere are men told to raise their hands to their wives and say, you will submit. No. And we also remember that this is not an act of superiority. It is not that men have earned the right to be the head of their homes. It simply means functionally this is the way God designed it. I am the leader of my home. I want to say to you that my wife is one of the wisest women that I know. She is really smart. And I regularly seek her counsel. And I should. In fact, sometimes she gives it when I don't ask for it. We work together, and I seek her counsel. Of course, we understand the saying is true that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. We understand the results of the curse, that men often rule over their wives in a domineering, dictatorial, iron-fisted way. You're not told to dominate your wives. That's, that's never a command in Scripture. Peter, in fact, says don't do it. Don't wield your power and authority over your wife in an inappropriate way. Live with them as someone weaker, meaning they, meaning they have less authority than you. They are voluntarily submitting to your leadership, so don't abuse it. Use your authority to live with them in an understanding way. Rather than using our strength and authority to get our way, we use it to support them. There is a sense in which we use our strength to serve them. Is that not what Christ did for us? Is that not what Paul said when he says, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her? Talk about someone with strength who served his bride. 
Our strength should not be a source of intimidation and fear for them. It should be a source of strength and security as we lift them up. Third, we are to live with them in an honoring way. Simply said, we are to honor our wives. Honor them. How do we do that? The word literally speaks of honor, respect, recognition, price, or value. In fact, in chapter 2, the word was translated precious. Remember, Jesus is the precious, same word, precious cornerstone. It means that we esteem them. We place high value on them. It means we recognize, respect, and acknowledge all that they do and honor them for the way that God has made them for their priceless and precious contribution to our lives and the lives of our families. That's what it means to honor your wife. I, I want to stress the vocal part, the vocal part of this responsibility. Men, we are not very good at communicating, and most are even worse at verbalizing appreciation and honor for and to their wives. So let me ask you a simple question. When is the last time you told your wife you appreciated her? When is the last time you complimented her? I didn't say flattery. When is the last time you complimented her? To to honor is to affirm her gifts, abilities, and accomplishments and express appreciation and gratitude, listen, both privately and publicly. Drives me crazy when I hear a husband refer to his wife as the wife. That is so disrespectful. One commentary said this, honor not expressed is not honor. Gratitude not expressed is not gratitude. The old saying, I told you when I married you that I loved you, if it ever changes, I'll let you know, is dumb. A husband is to live with his wife in an understanding, in a supportive, in an honoring way. And we do that for a couple of very important reasons. One positive, one negative. The positive side of the truth is our wives are fellow heirs with us of the grace of life. Fellow heirs. I have been hammering this. They have been equally created in the image of God. They have been equally redeemed, and they have equal standing, grace, and reward before the Father. You understand what Jesus said. When we get to heaven, there's not going to be male or female. There's not going to be giving in marriage or receiving marriage. No, no, there's not going to be that because the cross is the great equalizer. Paul said it this way in Galatians 3, very interesting. There is neither Jew nor Greek, that's ethnicity. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, for you, all, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Do you see that? Citizens and unbelieving governments, slaves and unbelieving masters and, and, and wives and unbelieving husbands. It does not matter what your station in life is within the structures that God has set up. Jew or Greek or, or, or slave or free, male or female, within those structures, we are all equal heirs of the grace of God. It's time we act like it. You see, negatively speaking, if we fail to live with our wives in this way, our relationship with them will be less than God has designed it to be. Further, our relationship with Him will be less than it can be. Because we see failure to apply these principles actually results in my prayers being hindered. 
That's what it says. You see, there is a sense in which my relationship with God affects all other relationships, and there is a sense in which my relationship with my wife affects my relationship with God. Abusing my relationship with my wife hinders my relationship with God. That's how important this is. Someone reminded me this week as I was talking with them about this text, there are three times that we read that God will not hear our prayers. First, when we regard iniquity or wickedness in our hearts, if we are engaged in willful sin, it's a secret sin, nobody knows about it, well, maybe God does, refusing to repent, God will not hear us. You can't do that. Second, when we ask for things with wrong motives, to spend it on our own pleasures rather than for God's good purposes. And third is here, if we refuse to understand, support, and honor our wives. There is a sense in which these all go together. If we know what we should do in this relationship when we don't, we're sinning, we're regarding iniquity in our heart. We were saying, I know what you said, God, but I'm not going to do it. We are selfish, seeking our own pleasures and not our wives whom we are supposed to love as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her. In other words, I'm done. While this is a short verse, it is full of most necessary truth. So I have some simple questions for you as we close. Does your wife feel understood in that you seek to listen to and understand her? Second, does your wife feel supported or does she feel intimidated? When's the last time you invited her input? And third, does your wife feel honored as a joint heir in the grace of life or does she feel beneath you because you make sure that she knows who you are rather than who Christ is? Men, live with your wives in an understanding, in a supportive, in an honoring way. Anything less is a sham.